you don't know me, my name's Austin Connor. I'm one of the directors here at Veritas. Been doing my job now for 11 years. I love it. I would be nowhere else wanting to do nothing else. I was here at Mizzou way too long ago, 15 years ago. I was sitting where you were, taking chemistry at 8 a.m. If you have that, I feel your pain. This is my family behind me, my lovely wife. Her name is Polly. She's actually here tonight. How about that? What's up? We have three kids. Adeline is seven. Tyler is five. Clayton is two. They're the angels behind me. It's always like that at my house. Actually, no, it's more like this, this next one. We always have a picture of Adeline picking up Clay, and he is not happy in that picture. He's fine. Let me ask you guys a question. What's happening in your lives right now? What are you guys going through? What do you find yourself experiencing right now? Do you have any idea what it means? Last week, Kyle showed the picture of his dog, Chief. And Chief, if you haven't met him, he's awesome. Here's the picture. It doesn't get much cooler than that. Chief's an awesome dog. I also have a dog. And his name is Chauncey. There he is. See, Chauncey's pretty cool. But it, let me tell you, what, looks can be deceiving. This dog... Lord, help me. He gets into the trash. When we leave, we have to go through like this 10-minute process to get the house ready. Lock him upstairs, close all the doors. There's a Thomas the Train fold-up doll that we put on our bed so that our kids play with so he doesn't jump on the bed. This dog is a demon. I'm not kidding you. But he's great. He's great with our kids. But seriously, if you want him, I'll pay you $20. Come talk to me afterwards. Uh, you know, I bring up Chauncey not just to try and find him another home, potentially, but because he contributed, a couple years ago, he contributed to something that happened to me that I am never going to forget. So a couple years ago, I'm mowing the lawn. Tyler's about three, and he's just starting to want to mow with me. It's kind of cool. He was playing around outside, going to the backyard, come out front, help dad mow the lawn for a little bit, go back and forth, back and forth. And I look over, and I, I see the gate had been left open, and then I hear this big commotion behind me, and it's like a dog fight. And I turn around. Chauncey has gotten out, and he has attacked and bitten a pit bull. So this guy walks his pit bull around our uh, neighborhood for months. I go over there, get him back in the lawn. The guy's still sitting there. And there's a couple drops of blood on the ground. Nothing too crazy. But Chauncey had bit this dog. And so, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. It was an accident. Let me just pay for the vet bill. So he comes back a week later. $40 for the antiseptic thing to make sure there was no infection. $40 for flea medicine. Definitely didn't pay that. That was interesting. That's a whole other story. Anyway, so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give the guy 50 bucks. I feel bad. So I'm out a couple weeks later mowing the lawn, and I see him kind of coming down the block. And so I, I got my clothes on uh, to mow the lawn, a pair of jeans, a baseball hat, T-shirt. Go inside, get the money, come back out. And we have a cul-de-sac. And he sees me coming. I'm walking across. And I mean, I'm right here. And as I am handing him the money, he takes it. Pitbull bites me in the leg. I can't make this up. <laughs> Stunned silence, and then I let out a scream, because, you know, a pitbull just ate, ate me, bit me, didn't eat me, I'm still here. You know what the guy said? He said, oh, oh my gosh. That was a, kind of a big dude, uh, intimidating looking. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And that was it. Didn't say, hey, here's the money back, are you okay? And so I kind of just let it sit there for a minute. I'm like, all right, man. So I go inside, make sure I'm not bleeding out. Thankfully, I had jeans on. Here's a picture of what happened to me. Sorry if you have a weak stomach. That's my leg right here, the inside of my leg. It's a bad, bad bruise. 
Yeah, you can take it off now. I think people are had enough of that. Later that night, though, after the dust had settled, after I took about 10 ibuprofen because I knew the pain was coming, the meaning sunk in. I just paid $50 to get bit by a pit bull. I mean, think about it. The guy didn't give the money back. I paid $50 to get bit by a pit bull. I can't make this up. It's so messed up that that is a part of my story. So I tell that not just because I want the world to experience my injustice, but because that highlights the reality that on the one hand, something happened to me, unfortunate and crazy though it was, and yet on the other hand, it took me a while to figure out what it meant. It wasn't completely obvious at the time. And in the exact same way in our passage tonight, something crazy happened to this community in the book of Acts that we're about to read. You know, this semester at Veritas, we're making our way through the New Testament book of Acts. It's a book that was written by a guy named Luke. He wrote two books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Luke, part one, details is basically a biography about Jesus. Part two is his book of Acts. Now, of course, this book was written to a group of people 2,000 years ago in the first century. So it's not written to us and yet it's written for us. See, it's written to, like I said, Christians way back in the first century. It's been preserved for us through the ages, over the years, generation to generation, because, because it's for us. Because we've got something to learn in 2018 here in Columbia at Mizzou. If you're familiar with the podcast, How I Built This, any business-minded people, it's a pretty cool podcast. kind of details the beginnings of a lot of well-known businesses, documents the breakthrough ideas that led to the company's growth, the struggles, and the obstacles that each company faced and how they overcame them. In many ways, that's what the book of Acts is. It documents the beginning of this movement of Jesus followers. It explains how the whole thing got started and it especially explains the obstacles and the struggles these Christians faced and what it meant for their lives. And tonight, we're gonna be studying and looking at an event that apart from Jesus' resurrection might be the most transformational, might be the most important and empowering moments in the lives of these early Christians. It really isn't a stretch to say that we would not be here if it were not for this Pentecost event. So let's jump right in and see what happened. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They here is, is referring to a group of about 120 of Jesus' disciples. You've got the original 12 and then about 110 more. So 120 of them together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They were in a very open, a very public house, very near the temple, which was in Jerusalem. There's no windows, so everybody can kind of see and hear what's going on. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Let's jump down to verse 12. Amazed, and perplexed, they asked one another. Now, these are the people who are present for Pentecost, who are looking at this room, hearing and seeing it. They were perplexed, and they said, what's this mean? But some, some other people, however, who saw all this happen, some other people, however, made fun of those people. And they said, they, they've had too much wine. Before we explain what's going on in these verses, I want to acknowledge that 
that in a similar way, something has happened to each and every one of you in this room. You and I, all of you, not me, but you are all experiencing the same thing. You know what it is? It's a new semester of college. A new semester of college is here. It's happened, and it's happening. For some of you, it's your very first one. For others, it's your very last one. Some of you are living on your own for the first time. Some of you are living with people that you would rather not live with. Others of you are living with somebody that you love and that you know and you're so glad to be living with them. You're attending your first college lectures. You're trying to not get lost on campus again. You're trying out a new major. Some of you are attending Veritas for the very first time. Others are here for maybe the 500th time. And yet, if you think about it, this new semester of college, it's not totally obvious what that really means there you go. It's not obvious what that first semester of college means. How are you interpreting it? What does that mean for you? You know, some of you, this new semester of college, you finally realize you're in charge. Maybe you've been told what to do by your parents all your life or other groups of people, and finally now you have the freedom to make your own choices. Maybe you think this new semester is the time to really figure out who you are. Not somebody else, not a group of people, not a social circle. You get to decide, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I want. Maybe this semester means it's time to craft a new image. You've been trying one out. You've fallen into a certain, I don't know, scenario or person, and you're sick of it. Maybe thus far in college or even in high school. But this semester is a chance for you to be somebody new, that self you've always wanted to be. Maybe you think it's time to party. Maybe it's time to let loose. You've been a good, maybe Christian boy or girl growing up, and you just want to experience the world. You're sick of all of these restraints. Let loose, have fun, not take life so seriously. That was me. That was my first semester. In high school, I had two groups of friends. I had my, my youth group, which it's an interesting term, my youth, who says that? I had my youth group friends, and I was at the top of the social food chain over there. But it was like 10 people. <laughs> if that's you, that's fine, good, and good company, great. In my high school, about 300, 400 people, I was a dork. I played sports, but I was a dork. I was not in those social circles, and I wanted that so bad because I was unpopular. And so when I came to Mizzou, about knew about two people. It was time for me to craft that new image. My very first weekend at college, I was rooming with a buddy from high school, and we met some people on our dorm floor, and they went to this apartment complex. Back then, it was Jefferson Commons. Now it's the reserve. I went to this party. It was on the third floor, and I kid you not, I got up there. I got a beer in my hand. I stepped to the balcony. I looked down. I see a pizza guy drive up. Delivers the pizza, walks over, and does a three-story beer bong from the garden hose that's hanging down. I'm not kidding. And in my mind, I'm like, this is awesome. This is college, yes, finally. My sophomore year, I joined a fraternity. Because again, in my mind, for me, that was a way to continue to craft this new image. This is the way to get to that so top of the social food chain. And the partying just continued for a long time for me. Maybe that's you. Or maybe this semester isn't something to celebrate. Maybe you're not actually excited about another semester. Maybe for you, this is, you think it's going to be another semester where you're paralyzed by anxiety. 
because of all the pressures you feel that are weighing you down. It's like you're walking around with a backpack full of weights. Maybe you think this means another semester of loneliness. Nobody calling you on a Friday night. Nobody caring if you're there or not. It doesn't make any difference. Maybe you think this is the semester where you feel like it's time to give up the fight against sin. It's not worth it. It's too hard. I see so many other people having fun. They seem to be doing okay. Is it really worth it? Maybe this is the time to give up. Or maybe in the end, you're just not sure what this new semester means. You're trying to survive. You're trying to figure out where your next class is, where the study group meet, what lab hours are, what it's going to look like, and that's fine. But the question's out there. What does this new semester mean to you? What do you think God would say to that? Does he get a say? Are you open to listening what he has to say? What's this semester mean to him? And what does that mean for us? I think this passage tonight is going to give us some answers. So let's go back through, first of all, to figure out what the heck is happening here. All right, let's go back to verse 1. We notice that the setting here is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was this annual festival for the people of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people out of the Old Testament. It's a group, an ethnic group of, they call them Jews. And every year they were commanded, they had to have this feast. We, we know what this is like every year, right? There's holidays, Christmas and Fourth of July and Labor Day, whatever it is. It's kind of the same way with Israel. And so three times a year, they have to have these harvests. Pentecost is the one right in the middle. And it happened 50 days after the Passover. Jews celebrated the Passover as a remembering how God brought them out of slavery from Egypt. Fifty days later, you are celebrating the day of Pentecost. So we get that word from the Greek word, which is Pentecostes, right? Pent, 50. And now this festival, it drew hundreds and thousands of people from all around the known world, all around the ancient Near East. Think 4th of July in Washington, D.C. If you've seen pictures of Muslims going on a hajj to Mecca, I mean, there are Hundreds of thousands of people, crowded, sweaty, all of it. This is kind of the setting that's going on in Jerusalem. It's packed without a towner. So much so that some people who went there for this festival, they just stayed. They didn't go back home. And I want to, again, when it says they there, it's a group of these 120 followers of Jesus. They're all together in one place in a room that's close to the main temple in Jerusalem. Let's go to verse 2. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Notice these symbols of wind and fire. It says not actually that, but seemed like, like a violent wind, seemed to be tongues of fire. These are symbols that are meant to point to a very important reality, and that's the fact that God is actually present. God is here on earth, in Jerusalem. You see, in in the entire Bible, throughout it all, this word wind is meant to signify the presence of God's spirit. And fire signifies God's presence, the presence of God himself. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, a couple examples, when Moses meets God in the burning bush, it's burning, it's on fire. He's described that when the Israelites are at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God descends in a blazing fire for all the people to see. And so these symbols mean that the God of Israel, the one who started and maintained this relationship with Israel, that was what's called a covenant, through a covenant, he's on the scene. And he's doing and he did something 
amazing. Here's what he did. He enabled these disciples to speak in other tongues. It's in verse 4. Now that word in the original Greek used for tongues can also be translated, maybe in this case, in these passages, better translated, languages. Now some scholars and other uh, traditions have thought that these disciples in these verses are speaking some sort of angelic spiritual language that nobody on earth can understand. Now that may or may not have happened at some point in the New Testament in history, I'm not denying that, but in these verses, that's not at all what's happening here. In these verses, these 120 disciples were given the ability supernaturally by the Holy Spirit to speak another known language. It's in the text, verse 6. When they heard this, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because why? Well, they heard their own language being spoken. That is their native language. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, they're not supposed to be able to understand my own language. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. See, here's what's happening. Imagine right now if I somehow blacked out and I started speaking fluent perfect Chinese. It'd be pretty awesome. 99.9% of you in here would have no idea what I'm saying. You would think it's gibberish. Maybe you think it's some sort of angelic spiritual language. And yet, if you are in here and you speak fluent, perfect Chinese, that's not gibberish. You know what I'm saying. That is exactly what is happening in these verses. This is a supernatural event. And the only reason it happened is because these followers, these disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. What the heck does that mean? Now, can't say everything there is to say on these verses, but I do want to highlight a few important things. If after tonight you still have questions, I'll be up here in front. If you'd like to come talk to me about things, happy to do that. But let's highlight some, some big picture stuff here. First of all, the Holy Spirit. We sang about it just a little bit ago. He is the third member of the Trinity. You see, the Bible tells us that God is one being and three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All God in person, and yet they have different functions, different roles. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, he's not a force, he's a person. We have to refer to him as a he. His main role, all throughout scripture, two main things. First is to point to and highlight Jesus. That's all he's concerned about. There's a picture behind me of the Washington Monument at night. Notice those lights, if you can see them there. The lights that are pointing to and highlighting that monument. That's their job. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit is like, who he is and what he does. He is committed to pointing others towards and magnifying the person of Jesus. Another role that the Spirit plays in the world is he equips and he enables God's chosen people to fulfill and to live out and play a part in his mission. We see this in verse 4 if we go back to the verses. Remember what it says? It says, these disciples began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There you go. As the Spirit enabled them. So the only way these 120 disciples were able to speak in these languages is because the Holy Spirit equipped them to. Now, on the one hand, if you were Jewish, if you considered yourself a part of God's people of Israel, and you saw and experienced this, you would have been shocked. You, your mind would have been blown, rightfully so. What the heck is going on? How can I hear my own language? That didn't happen. And yet, on the other hand, according to the Old Testament, this day was always coming. 
This day was always coming. You see, they, they foretold that his people, there'd be a day in the future when every single one of God's people would be equipped to serve him faithfully. And so in the Old Testament book of Numbers, we learn that Moses, after some prophesying happens, he longs for every single person to prophesy like that. In the Old Testament prophet uh, Joel, he has a book, he predicted this day when the Spirit would be shared and we'd be poured out in everyone, every believer's life. And the Apostle Peter in the sermon that follows this, we don't have time uh, to read it, but I'd say read it on your own because it's really helpful in interpreting this. Peter says that this day has come, that it's here, it's arrived in and through Jesus. These verses also tell us that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit before they started speaking in other languages. So filled with the Spirit. Well, there's several examples, if you go through the Old Testament, several examples of Old Testament figures being filled with the Spirit. And when that happened, in every single case without fail in the context, they were filled with the Spirit for a specific purpose. They were equipped to accomplish something, a task that furthered God's mission in the world in that particular time, in that particular place. And so if you've ever wondered What the heck does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Think of it not so much as you and I needing to be filled with more of it, as if somehow Christians are lacking the Holy Spirit, but instead, a better way to think about being filled with the Spirit is to realize that it's like the Holy Spirit is getting more of us. In other words, the Spirit is moving us to greater levels of commitment, greater levels of faithfulness in different areas of our lives at different times. You see, in Jesus... God has placed his Holy Spirit in us. He indwells and fills every believer equally. And so if you're here tonight and you've put your faith in Jesus, not a perfect faith, not 100% faith, but a little bit more than not, 51%, two steps forward, one step back kind of faith, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, our lives can be filled with the Spirit, and yet look totally different, look like they're not, because we have struggles and desires and influences in other ways in greater degrees. At the risk of of being a little bit heretical here, that's always a good lead into an illustration, isn't it? Uh, Think about it like this. Imagine you've got a glass of milk, and you pour chocolate syrup into that glass of milk. On the one hand, the glass is full of milk. And yet before you stir up the chocolate milk, you know it's in there, but it doesn't look like it. What do you have to do? You have to stir that up. And what happens when you stir that chocolate in? It, 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 it changes it. And you notice that something is, is different. It's exactly like that if we claim to follow Jesus. We can have the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are filled, and yet we can still look and live like we don't have it. But when we focus on things of the Spirit to, to fill more of our lives, our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit's light and goodness and truth in more and more of our lives. We're going to want to spread God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy. We want those realities to come home in our hearts and in our individual lives and on a large scale so that it gets noticed a little bit more and more, for sure by ourselves and the people around us. Last point. Look at who is experiencing and witnessing Pentecost. Down to verse nine. Here's who is present. Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Here's a map that shows 
where everybody was from on this day of Pentecost. There are people from all over the known world. Remember, hundreds of thousands of people here. It's an extremely diverse group of people. Many of them return to their own countries to share and tell and to, to what, what experienced, what they just experienced. And the fact that they went back and told others what happened and what it meant, that's not an accident. You see, God meant for all these different peoples to be present at Pentecost because he wants all peoples of the earth to know what he's done in and through Jesus. But what does all this mean for us? Remember we said the book of Acts isn't written to us, but it's written for us. So, so what's it mean for us? How does this have any sort of bearing on this new semester? Well, a couple things. First, Pentecost means that God wants all kinds of people to be a part of his story. You know, that diversity of nations, it's meant to remind us that God is not content to have just a small subset of a kind of person. He doesn't want the same kind of person. I mean, he wants diversity. Think about it just for a minute. Think about all the people and all the groups that are on Mizzou's campus. People of different ethnicities, people of different races, people of different religions, people of different political views, ones you might like, ones you might not like, different personalities, Greeks, non-Greeks, on and on and on we could go. Do you want those people here? Do you want those people on your dorm floor that aren't like you at all? Do you want them here? Do you want maybe the group that you see sitting in Memorial Union or the student center or something? Do you, do you want those people here? Do you want them to be part of the story? Are you hoping they join? God, God does. He wants every student on Mizzou's campus to love Jesus. He wants every student to live for his kingdom. He wants his kingdom to come in more and more ways. And what? What part are you playing in that? What part am I playing in that? You know, if you're here tonight and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or you're kind of checking things out or maybe you used to be and you're not quite sure anymore, I just want to say I'm glad you're here. I want to say that there's a place for you here. There's a place for you in God's story. Pentecost is his invitation, loud and clear to say, come. No resume needed. Your past does not matter. All that requires to be truly a part of this people is to have faith in Jesus, 51%, a little bit more than not. Yeah, you can have some questions and still work it out, and yet you believe. If you're ready, that's great. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our staff. If you're not ready, that's okay too. Stick around. You know what? Join a small group, even if you're not sure. This is the place we want you. There's a place for you here. So God wants all kinds of people. That's what Pentecost means. Second thing, Pentecost means that God is actually equipping and enabling his people. If you're a Christian, guess what? You have a purpose. You have a job, a mission, whether you know it or not. The moment that you and I put our faith in Jesus, we are made a part of something so much bigger than ourselves, so much bigger than the size of our own life. The way we say it, around Veritas specifically, what that mission is, is we think God's mission is for us to move the hearts and minds of more college students to love Jesus and to live for his kingdom together. And thanks to Pentecost, any and every Christian in the world, they've been enabled, we've been enabled to carry out Jesus' mission. Yes, Christians are sinners. Anybody who tells you they're not, they're lying. They're in self-denial. I'm a sinner. 
Ask my wife, she's here. It's okay, don't ask her, but you get it. We're messy, we're sinners. We can be jerks and gossips and harsh with our words, whatever else. We get depressed and anxious and unsure, just like everybody else. And yet, God loves to commit himself to people like that. He takes the imperfect and the ordinary and he uses it to contribute to his story, something extraordinary. So here we are, ordinary, incomplete works in progress, and yet at the very same, same time equipped and enabled to accomplish God's mission. That's his plan, so we should, we should get used to it. And again, it happens not because we're something special, but because Jesus is. You see, if you were here last week, then you know Jesus didn't stay in the ground. It wasn't a hoax. He rose. He ascended into heaven, which means that he has total power, total control over this world right now. Not aloof, not hoping that, oh, let's just get it all over with and then we'll take the Christians out and go somewhere else. No, he's in control right now. He didn't hoard the power. He didn't keep the power. He shared that power at Pentecost. He didn't need to do that, but he wanted to do that. And so so what are we going to do about it? What does that mean for you on that dorm floor? What's it mean for you, maybe leading that small group for the first time, living in that fraternity or sorority house? What's it mean for you as you meet new friends, as you prioritize your schedules, as you get involved in things, as you find your smaller group of people, as you struggle with sin, as you struggle with depression and anxiety and addiction and whatever else it may be as you feel like you're limping along in life? What's that mean? Here's what it means. It means you've been equipped and enabled because Jesus has a mission and he wants us to join in. And thanks to the Holy Spirit's work in the past, work in the present, and promised work in the future, that's gonna continue to happen. Last one. Pentecost means God is here. He was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He's here in 2018 in Columbia on Mizzou's campus. Do you know what these disciples were saying at Pentecost? They were declaring the wonders of God. They were speaking about, in a different language that everybody heard, something amazing that had happened. They were speaking about the fact that the God of the universe, the God of Israel, actually showed up. Jesus stepped into the story that he's writing. Do you know that? Or have you missed it? As the music team comes up, Last story. In 1998, there's an art critic. His name was Peter Silverman. He's strolling through an art gallery in Manhattan, New York. He comes across this painting. Kind of takes a look, catches his eye a little bit. And and it was this painting right here. It's called the La Bella Principessa. I think that's right. Anyway, he he, he was looking at it and he liked it and he checked the price tag. It was $9,000. And it was unsure of who painted it. It was purported to be painted by a 19th century German artist. And these guys mimicked the, the techniques of Renaissance painters. But this guy wasn't so sure. He was convinced that this was a legit Renaissance painting from the 14-1500s. And so he doubled the bid. He's like, I got to get this, 18000 bucks. Unfortunately, he was outbid. Lost it for $21,000. So he thought, well, that's the end of that. Walking around another art gallery in Manhattan nine years later, walks into this room. There's a painting on an easel. It's the only painting in the room. The little spotlight's on it. It's the same painting. It's that painting. And he's 
breath was taken away. He noticed it again. He looked at it. It had been nine years, but he still recognized it. He's like, you know, I, th- I still think this was written by a Renaissance. This is painted by a Renaissance master. It looks at the price tag, $21,000. Same price. Second chances like this don't come up. So he called his wife like that. He said, wire the money. Gets it, puts it in an envelope, straps on his back, rides the little moped back. After months and months and months of intense testing and debate and analysis, several world-class experts concluded that this indeed was painted by a Renaissance master. In fact, painted by the greatest Renaissance master of all, Leonardo da Vinci. They priced that painting $150 million. Imagine if you're the person who sold the painting at the art gallery. How you feeling right now? Whoops. They missed it. They thought this painting was just like all the others. Maybe deserves its own room, but you, you know. Nothing super special. Have you done that? Have you missed Jesus? Have you seen his wonders? What's he worth to you? Do you know what he did 2,000 years ago? Do you know what he did 2,000 years ago? Do you know what he's doing today? Do you know what he promises to do in the future? Or do you think he's just another good painting among the others? You see, Pentecost is shouting to us that God is here. You see, in and through Jesus, God's on a mission. He's on a mission to redeem and to restore this broken world, the entire world, and especially Columbia, right here at Mizzou on campus. It's broken. It's got hard places. I don't need to convince anybody of that. But we need to convince people. I need to convince myself. You need to convince yourself. Remind yourself. Remind other people that we're not alone. That God is here. That Jesus has a mission and a purpose for it. He is inviting all of us into this room, into this story. Each and every person on campus can play a part. Let's let that reality shape this new semester. Amen.